Hey there, this is Jonathan Tepperman, Foreign Policy's Editor-at-Large, and this is FP Playlist. Each week, my goal is to help you sort through the huge list of podcasts out there by recommending one show from somewhere around the world that I think you're going to like. This week, we're featuring a great show called Revolution One. Created and hosted by Aaron Brown and Cyrus Rodell, the show tells the story of how the Arab Spring kicked off 10 years ago, focusing in particular on events in Tunisia. As you'll hear, Brown and Rodell make a great team. She's a reporter and he's a historian. Working from Tunisia, they walk listeners through the events that would set the whole region on fire. The episodes we're highlighting this week involves a literal fire and a gruesome one, the suicide through self-immolation of a man named Mohamed Bouazizi. It was Bouazizi's death that first triggered the protests that would bring down Tunisia's government and kick off similar revolutions throughout the Arab world. Before we get to the episode, though, I want to play a short conversation I recently had with Aaron and Cyrus about the show. Hi, Aaron. It's great to talk to you. Hey, it's great to talk to you, too. So let's start with Tunisia. Your story is about the start of the Arab Spring, and Tunisia is obviously the place where that started, where everything started. But what drew you and, and your, your husband Cyrus to that country in particular? You know, that's a, a great question, and I'll actually let Cyrus answer that. I think he's uh, really the MENA, Middle East, North Africa expert in our family. Oh, great. Hi, Cyrus. Hey, how's it going? Um, I think that we chose Tunisia because it was the first one. Um, but I also think that part of the reason we chose it was because I feel like it wasn't covered that much in 2011 at the time. I think that it kind of caught everyone off guard and then Egypt happened and everyone moved on to Egypt and then they moved on to, you know, Libya and Syria and, and all of that. And so I think that there really wasn't ever a chance for people to focus on what had happened in Tunisia. And so I think a lot of people didn't really notice. Right. So tell me how this whole thing got started. Had either of you done a project like this before? So I'm a journalist and I'd worked on some sort of long-term projects, but nothing of this size and shape before. And I came home from work one day and saw Cyrus working on a spreadsheet and that was very out of character for him. And I, I kind of stopped him and said, hey, what are you working on? And uh, it turns out it was some research for what he thought would probably be a, a history podcast about Tunisia. But being a nosy journalist, I was like, what if we what if we went to Tunisia and talked to some people? Yeah, I mean, so I had done, I'd gotten a master's degree in Middle Eastern studies, um, and at the time was working at an NGO, working with Arab and Muslim uh, immigrants and refugees. Really enjoying my, my work there, but also kind of just missing out on doing some in-depth research. Yeah, and I convinced him to quit his job and move with me <laughs> to Tunisia because I was freelance and could freelance from just about anywhere. And did you have outside backing when you went to Tunisia, or did you just sort of show up and figure it out on the fly? We showed up and figured it out on the fly. We knew a couple of Tunisians living in, the, in New York, in the States. It's an incredibly rich country culturally and, and whatnot, but it's also still kind of a village. And so once you meet one person and tell them what you're working on and, and you know, sit down for an interview, then it kind of snowballed from there. So Cyrus, were you a specialist in Tunisia before you started the project? Uh, no, I wasn't. Uh, I had spent most of my uh, previous time and research in Jordan. Um, so Tunisia was kind of new to me. 
Um, I'm especially curious, you spend a lot of time with um, Ziad Bouazizi, the, the cousin of Mohammed Bouazizi, whose suicide started the protest that became the Arab Spring. So how did you find Ziad? And was he eager to share with you when you just show up at his door? Yeah, so Ziad, uh, most of the people we found were kind of just working through the, the network that we had and people recommending it. And he was really eager to talk. There were a few noted exceptions to that, I will say. Um, and, and it was two major factions. One was people who had been close to the regime. And then our sort of white whale for this project, despite probably close to 100 hours of sitting around uh, waiting for people to show up to meetings that they then canceled, were representatives from the General Tunisian Workers Union, which is uh, a, a really key organization in the revolution and was part of the quartet that won the Nobel Prize. But uh, they weren't having it. So what do you hope that listeners will take away from the series? We've talked a lot about this because this is not something that people are necessarily going out looking for. But I think when people hear this and hear these stories that come from the mouths of of everyday citizens who really were able to bring down a dictatorship with not much more than, you know, the power of their voices and platforms like Facebook, um, I think people will really connect with it. We're all caught up in the same things, the same difficulties, you know, joblessness, like finding a good job, you know, maintaining relationships with the people we love and care about, like all of those things are wrapped up into this story. And so I hope people, yeah, that they just want to take this ride because it's it's a really fascinating and super exciting story. I think another thing I want to add is it's been 10 years since the Arab Spring. We're seeing a lot of coverage of that. And I think that a lot of the coverage has taken a kind of the tone of like, it was a failure. Was it even worth it? And I, I hope that by listening to our series and really diving in deep into the stories of people who decided to try and overthrow their government and, and hearing what they were feeling at the time, like I hope people just come away with a more nuanced understanding that mm. this was a complicated thing um, and it's not as simple as was it worth it? Was it not? Was it successful? Was it not? Like, just like anything in history, there's there's a lot more going on than just those simple yes-no options. Sure. Well, I think that comes through super clearly. Aaron Brown and Cyrus Rodell, co-hosts of Revolution Number 1, thank you so much for talking. Thank oh, you. thank you. And here's Sidi Bouzid, the first episode of Revolution 1, which came out on January 14th. Where were you on the day that changed the course of the 21st century? The day that started the chain reaction that gave us Brexit and Donald Trump and ISIS, that brought back Vladimir Putin and started the refugee crisis? I'm not talking about 9-11, but about January 14th, 2011, 10 years ago today. You don't remember where you were? Yeah, neither do I. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, I can't blame you. But I also can't let you miss out on this story. You see, it's hard to know in the moment what an event's going to mean. When things are going to go from being just another Friday morning to being the first day of the next chapter of your life, let alone the next chapter of history. When you're there in the thick of it, it's hard to get the long view. 
It's the same story for Atiya Athmuni. Atiya is the kind of polished, middle-aged man whose graying beard, glasses, and worn tweed coat give him the air of a college professor. In fact, that's what folks in his town called him, the professor, even though he teaches at the local high school, not a university. And that's what he was doing on the morning of December 17th, 2010, giving a philosophy lecture to his students, when his phone rang in the middle of class. An unexpected phone call was nothing out of the ordinary for Atiyah. You see, he wasn't just a high school philosophy teacher. He was a longtime union activist in his town, a place called Sidi Bouzid, this squat and craggy little city in the middle of Tunisia. The central government, which had been under a dictator for the last 23 years, had all but forgotten Sidi Bouzid, and the unions were often the ones getting things done in town. Atiyah had been a mover and shaker in the teachers' union for decades, and was well-respected. So whenever something was afoot in Sidi Bouzid, someone would call Atiyah. But that Friday morning, he wasn't prepared for what was on the other end of the line. Jenny had to- I got a phone call saying we heard that there's someone who set himself on fire in front of the state building. Someone had set himself on fire. Atiyah was stunned. Usually folks would call him to complain about union disputes or squabbles with police. Had his friend heard correctly? He turned his back on his class and cupped his hand over the phone while they talked. The details were sparse. It was a young man, the fruit seller on the corner by the mosque downtown. No one really knew what happened. Atiyah decided he needed to see it for himself. I said, I'll go to him. I'll see what happened. Sidi Bouzid is in a big place. The state building was just a short drive down the main road from the school. He wasn't sure what to expect. So I led my students out 15 minutes early, and I headed towards the state building. But when I got there, all I found was a cart flipped upside down, some ashes, and some fruit. Atiyah stood there, looking over the gruesome scene where a young fruit seller had just set himself on fire, and tried to make sense of what had just gone on. Of course he sensed the gravity of the situation, but in that moment, Atiyah had no idea that what had just happened would be the first spark to ignite the Arab Spring and reshape the course of history. I'm Aaron Brown. And I'm Cyrus Rodell. And this is Revolution One, the story of the Tunisian uprising on the Agora Podcast Network. You know, Aaron, we're living through one of the biggest waves of social unrest in history. I'm sure you feel it. Yeah, I mean, I've been to more marches in New York in the last four years than I had in my entire life before that. And people are out on the streets in countries all around the world protesting. It feels like there's something in the air, but also that there's something different about all these uprisings. We were talking about it just the other day, and you asked me a question that hit right at the core of it. Do you remember? Yeah, I think so. I asked you who the Gandhi or Dr. King or Nelson Mandela of the 21st century was. And there really isn't one. Yeah, I mean, not really. It's weird because after an entire century of revolutions led by these charismatic figures who were backed by these organized political movements, the revolutions we have now are just, they're just dramatically different. They're these spontaneous eruptions of regular people spilling into the streets. Nothing about them is, is calculated or even centralized. And that's in large part because of the Tunisian Revolution and the Arab Spring that followed. You know, that same Friday in 2010 that Atiyah got that earth-shattering phone call? 
I was finishing up applications for master's programs in Middle Eastern studies. Back then, nearly every country in the region, in the Middle East and North Africa, from Morocco in the west to Iran in the east, was under the control of some sort of dictatorship. I mean, the level of corruption or brutality or repression that changed from country to country, but none of them had any real political rights, or even rights of expression, like freedom of speech or assembly, and had been that way for decades. Most of the dictators in the region, they'd taken power before I was even born, and it seemed like they weren't going anywhere, either. And then just in a matter of months, everything was flipped on its head. And I watched in real time on Twitter as one by one, those dictators were ousted or they were left desperately clinging to power. Tunisia lit a spark that spread across the whole region. There were six revolutions in a matter of months and major protests in a half a dozen other countries. Just a few months later, I was there in Jordan on the Syrian border. And I saw hundreds of Syrians stream into town every day as their country slowly collapsed. You saw all this from a different angle, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, we hadn't met yet. Cyrus and I are married, by the way. But it will be no surprise to you that even back then, as a little baby journalist, I was a breaking news junkie. That spring felt like every other day another revolution started. But just as soon as it had, something else major swooped in to take its place in the news cycle, like Gabby Giffords being shot or the Fukushima nuclear disaster. By the time we realized the Arab Spring was going to be a major story, the Tunisian revolution had already happened. Most news organizations skipped right over Tunisia and headed to Egypt, where things were spiraling out of control, and then went on to Yemen and Libya and Syria. But every one of those countries had been watching what happened in Tunisia, and countries for years to come would. Right. I mean, just last year, there was a brand new round of protests that swept through Algeria and Sudan, but also Chile and Argentina. There's the Gilets Jaunes in France, and the protests in Hong Kong, and, of course, the Black Lives Matter movement. But it's not just the protests. We feel the effects of the Arab Spring in so many other ways. In the 10 years since, I've reported on everything from the war in Ukraine to the refugee crisis in Europe to the U.S. elections. And if you burrow into just about any major news event these days, you don't have to go too far back to hit the Arab Spring. Want to know why the U.K. and E.U. are duking it out over a divorce agreement? The Syrian revolution devolved into a civil war, which sent a flood of refugees not just into Jordan, where you were, but also into Europe. The response was a rising tide of nationalism, and guys like Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson played on people's fears of refugees flooding into the country in their bid to make Brexit a reality. You know, one of the pillars of Donald Trump's first campaign was a promise to ban Muslims, feeding off of people's fears about ISIS, which was yet another outcome of the Arab Spring. The success of that policy empowered him to take an even harder stance on the U.S.'s southern border. It goes on and on. But... Most Americans, including me up until we started this project, know next to nothing about the political, economic, and cultural factors behind the Arab Spring, let alone anything about the people who were involved. You know, we're a team of a historian and a journalist, but we wanted to know, what happens in between the headlines and the history books? What are those powerful, personal stories that get whittled down to a soundbite for the news, or aggregated for the historical record? What's it really like to change the story of your country and the world? So we went to Tunisia to dive deep into what actually happened. And since there wasn't a Gandhi or Dr. King or Nelson Mandela to interview, we just talked to the regular, everyday people who made the revolution happen. It's a story of desperation, defiance, and transformation. Suddenly, students were becoming spies, mothers were turning into activists, 
and exiles emerged as politicians to push their country towards democracy. We interviewed dozens of people from all sides of the uprising, and now we're bringing the story of the Tunisian Revolution to you through their voices. So let's get started. This is episode one, Sidi Bouzid. So then what does make someone decide to set themselves on fire? In Sidi Bouzid, reaching heaven is easier than having a job here. This is Ziad Bouazizi. His cousin, Mohammed Bouazizi, was the man who set himself on fire. I grew up together, yeah. Even, I mean, when I started smoking, we started together. Sidi Bouzid, where the boys grew up, and where our story starts, is this economically depressed town in the middle of Tunisia. In case you need a quick geography refresher, Tunisia is this little wedge of land on the African side of the Mediterranean. It's what Italy's boot is kicking Sicily towards. You might not think you know a lot about Tunisia, but you probably know more than you think. If you've read the Aeneid in high school or learned about Hannibal crossing the Alps with elephants, that's all Carthage, the ancient capital on the northern coast of the country. For centuries, it was a major producer of grain and grapes to the Roman Empire. Then the Arabs came in the 7th century, and it started this process where Tunisia became the Arab and Muslim country it is today. Even if you're not so familiar with Carthage or ancient Rome, You've probably seen another place in Tunisia, and one that's even closer to where our story starts. Patouine. What a desolate place this is. That's right, the hometown of Luke Skywalker is an actual village in the southern part of Tunisia. And apart from those mud cave homes, it looks a fair bit like Sidi Bouzid. Sidi Bouzid is right in the middle of Tunisia's agricultural belt, and it's mostly a waypoint for fruits and vegetables before they're shipped off to bigger cities. This whole area has been ignored by the government for decades. While money was pumped into infrastructure projects on the coast in cities like Tunis, which has a modern highway system and a beautiful tree-lined avenue downtown, Sidi Bouzid doesn't really even have a stoplight. The main street is this hodgepodge of shabby cafes, mosques, little convenience shops, and just a lot of empty storefronts. Most of the neighborhoods don't even have paved roads, and they definitely don't have sidewalks. Almost every news report I'd read about Sidi Bouzid included the word dusty. And they weren't wrong. When we stepped into one of those cafes, it felt more like a waiting room than anything. Every place is filled with these groups of young men, nursing a single cup of Nescafe or a pack of cigarettes for hours, just sitting there, waiting for things to change in their lives. Ten years ago, it was even worse. So then Zid's quip about it being easier to get into heaven than to get a job it wasn't really a joke. Back in 2010, the unemployment rates in rural parts of Tunisia was nearly 40%. And if you could find a job, it was probably in agriculture, working long hours for almost no money. In Sidi Bouzid, no way. Either just, I mean, to be a farmer, to work in, like, in farms and things like that, or there is no way to have a job. People were living on a couple of dollars a day, and sometimes even less. Even Ziad, who had moved to Tunis and gotten a master's degree, could only find odd jobs. For me, I came here to Tunis, and I was working as a, like a translator. Maybe just having like a little amount of money is much better than nothing. But none of the jobs were permanent, and none of them was a career. If you wanted something full-time, you'd have to pay a bribe. I remember once, I, like someone told me that I need to pay 12,000 dinars to have a job. Yep, to be a teacher. That amount, 12,000 dinars, that was more than most teachers made in a year. 
I mean, someone, especially from Sidi Bouzid at that time, having 12,000 dinars. If I have that amount of money, I will start my own business. So then lots of Tunisians were living on the economic edge like this. The formal business sector at the time was controlled by this corrupt circle close to the president and his family. And unless you had connections, you weren't breaking into it. Everyone else trying to make it on their own had to wade through a sea of red tape to get a business permit or operate under the table by bribing the police. And that's where we meet Mohamed Bouazizi, the man who set himself on fire. You need to know that Mohamed wasn't an activist or a zealot. He wasn't politically engaged at all, in fact. He was 26 years old and already out of options. Ziad described him as a sweetly naive guy, scrawny, demure, generous to a fault. You could take the money out of his pocket and he'd trust that you needed it more than he did. The boys would be out smoking at a cafe, and if Ziad asked to borrow some cash for a drink or a smoke, Muhammad would give him his last dinar, even though he needed it. Muhammad's dad died when he was young, and as the oldest son, he had to help meet his family's needs. While he was in school, Muhammad was perpetually exhausted because he'd pick up odd jobs after class. Ziad left Sidi Bouzid to go to university, but Muhammad couldn't. He's not graduated from university. Secondary school, that's it. A lot of news reports got this part wrong. They said Muhammad had an advanced degree, but he didn't. But college or no, making ends meet in Sidi Bouzid was tough. Muhammad Bouazizi was the person who was taking care of the whole family, by the way. And he was, like, spending the whole time, especially on the day, selling fruits on streets. And at night, he'd go to the supermarket from midnight to 6 a.m., like to work for like some money, having some money, six dinars, seven dinars, ten dinars per night, and get some fruits and vegetables so he would be able to, to sell them during the day. Mohammed had a fruit cart, and he'd sell produce from the area to people on the main drag of the town. But he wasn't supposed to. There was one government-sanctioned place to sell produce in Sidi Bouzid, and that was the central market. He was not able to sell his fruits in the weekly market. He needed just to go to streets. Because he was not able just to fight for his place in this market. You have, you have, I mean, to be strong so you can join those, we'll say, gangs in the markets and there, yes, so you'll be able to, to sell your food. Mohammed didn't have the power or the money to get a stall in the market, so he built a little handcart and set up on a busy corner right near a mosque where there were good crowds and regular foot traffic. Then, one afternoon, a policewoman and her partner showed up. She asked him to move from that place. Someone is working hard. Where do you want him to go? They are saying, you are selling the fruits here. Yeah? It's not good for, like, uh, the beauty of the city. Essentially, they were telling him his cart of oranges was bringing down the curb appeal of a town that was as short on charm as it was on infrastructure. Look, Tunisia's got plenty of cities along the coast with gorgeous beaches or Roman ruins that have been tourist hotspots for decades. But Sidi Bouzid isn't a pretty whitewashed town on the sea. Remember? Dusty. This kind of harassment from the police wasn't uncommon. Muhammad was used to it. They were most likely just looking for a bribe. But they took his fruit instead as a fine, and he left. But he couldn't not work, so he looked for a new spot. So he left that place that day, and like three days later, on Friday, he moved to this taxi station, and he started selling his fruits there. But the police found him again and told him to move. So he refused to move from there. She took his balance. They took his scales probably the most valuable thing he owned and the only essential piece of equipment in his business. He was pissed and an argument started. 
He called the policewoman a word I can't say on the radio. And then she slapped him. He was humiliated and furious. Sidi Bouzid is a traditional place, and being slapped by a woman in public, especially one who had just stripped him of his means of supporting his family, was beyond what Bouazizi's pride could bear. He stormed off to the police station to try and talk to someone about this humiliation. He wanted to hold the policewoman responsible and get his scales back. They refused to hear him. Then he went to the mayor's office and was turned away. Finally, he went to the Walea, the state building, where the governor's office was. He demanded to talk to the governor. The guards at the gate told him to go away. We can never know what Muhammad was feeling before he took his next step, or what he was hoping to achieve. He never told anyone, and afterwards it would be too late. But whether out of anger or desperation, as he stood outside the gates of the governor's office, Muhammad Bouazizi poured lighter fluid on himself. And then, he flicked the wheel of his lighter. Moments later, he was engulfed in flames. My name's Kurt Jaimungle, and this is the Theories of Everything podcast. The show where we bring rigor to mathematics, physics, and consciousness. Exploring grand unified theories, as well as free will and God. Even exploring aliens with former CIA Lou Elizondo. Heated debates on metaphysics with Kastrup and Verveke. Imagine you are an organism that spans a galaxy. How does the universe look to you? Type in Theories of Everything on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, all platforms. We went to Sidi Bouzid, with Ziad, to see where all this happened. As we drove into town that first night, he showed us the corner where Muhammad's cart had been. I slowed down to take a look. Then, he pointed across the street, to the Walea, where he lit himself on fire. I hadn't realized everything was so close. The police station was next door, and the mayor's office was just a few blocks down. In my mind, Muhammad Bouazizi's self-immolation must have included this grand wind-up, abandoning his cart somewhere in the city and marching downtown to this fancy government office to demand his rights. But he just walked across the street. The smallness of it all made it, to me, even more tragic. I think Ziad said it best when we asked him what he was feeling when he heard the news about Muhammad. Honestly, I was very angry at that time. At least give, I mean, the people the opportunity to listen to them, yeah? When I want just to talk, at least to talk. You are not giving me this opportunity. So what do you expect from people to do? It was as if there were two parallel worlds on that little stretch of road in Sidi Bouzid, divided by economics and power. The police officers and municipal workers, and probably even the governor, must have passed Mohammed every morning on their way into work. Yet their indifference rendered him invisible, especially when he came to be heard. And while Mohammed was just feet from the walaya each day, to him, the governor who refused to hear him might as well have been a ghost. The whole time I'd spent it on Sidi Bouzid, I never saw the face of a governor there. You may see, I mean, God or Allah face, but not the governor there. You always black car. Where is the governor? He's inside the car. That's it. I never saw his face yet. Zid was in Tunis working when this all happened. 
but news spread quickly among folks from Sidi Bouzid. When we were there, there was a minor traffic accident on the main road, and it brought out what seemed like nearly half of the town to see what was going on. Obviously, a man lighting himself on fire would grab even more attention. So that's why Ziad hopped on a bus right away to head home, and why Atia, our professor-slash-activist, walked out on his students to see what was happening. As Atiyah was trying to piece together what had happened from the remains of Muhammad's cart, someone who had seen the whole thing told him they'd taken Boazizi to the local clinic. Atiyah rushed over, but the scene of the clinic was just as much of a mess. They weren't prepared for someone completely covered in second and third degree burns, and it turned out they didn't even have an ambulance. When I got there, he was just laying in a hallway. I asked what was happening, and one of the administrators told us they couldn't find a way to transfer him to Sfax. There was no car. Atia knew that Bouazizi needed to get to the bigger, more sophisticated hospital in Sfax, which is about 85 miles away on the coast. He saw that this was his moment to step in and use all the political cachet he had built up over the years as a union organizer. So Atia leaned on the administrators to see if they couldn't do more for Bouazizi. I got really angry, and I demanded that the administrator find a car to transfer him to the hospital. It was impossible for him to stay in that condition, lying in the hallway. The administrator tried to shrug me off, but I leaned on him. I threatened that I would organize a sit-in at the hospital if Bouazizi wasn't transferred to Sfax. Everyone was listening into the argument, and the pressure worked. He started to look for a car to transfer Bouazizi. By the time that Iktia left the clinic and headed to the center of town, it was late in the afternoon. A large crowd had started to gather in front of the municipal building, where there were still streaks of ash on the ground from Bouazizi's body. When we got there, we started hugging the people who were gathering and we started shouting and holding up homemade signs and banners. Little by little, the crowd grew and they started throwing fruits and rocks at the state building and climbing its walls. We were holding the banners, pushing for the government to listen to our claims and answer our demands. I think to a lot of American ears, this sounds pretty normal. A tragedy happens and people protest. But at the time, protesting against the government was absolutely illegal in Tunisia. Any gathering of more than three people risked being broken up by the police. And it could land you in jail. Indefinitely. The folks leading these protests were the kind of people you might call the usual suspects. These were the people at any sort of union meeting or political agitation in the town. They were mostly older men who had been activists since the 80s. Atiyah was one of them and he knew that this was bigger than just a spat with the police. We were telling the people that Bouazizi was a victim of injustice, that the administrative, political, and security authorities mistreated him to the point that he committed suicide. The authorities were responsible for his death. Our words resonated with them and spread across the whole town until more people emerged and were prepared to support Bouazizi and his issue. Usually the protests that Tia went to were small, and they ended quickly. The police would show up, and that would be that. He and the other opposition leaders would have to wait for the next opportunity to chip away at the regime. But even after 20 years of trying, little had really budged. But as the crowd outside the Walea thickened, Tia sensed something was different this time. I asked him how he knew. Because of the youth. 
because there were young people joining the movement for the first time. These marginalized youth, it is impossible that you control them. You cannot limit their impulse. You know what I suggested? A sit-in, that we put up tents, close off the roads, and invite people from even the suburbs to join us and create this big force that would corner the regime. But the youth couldn't be contained, so I wasn't able to hold the movement back. I was only able to move it forward. The youth showed up. Atiz is the word shabab here. It's an Arabic word to describe young men from the ages of 14 to, well, whenever they were able to get a job, find a wife, and enter real adulthood. You know, dudes, the boys. These were the politically disinterested kids who had been hanging out in the coffee shops unemployed. But they were kids who identified with Boazizi. They started to turn up. And some of them had cheap camera phones. Those camera phones would prove to be incredibly potent weapons against the regime. And as the speeches in front of the Wale grew more impassioned, someone in the crowd started recording. Soon they would post the video online. The shaky footage became a call to arms for anyone who saw it. Ziad arrived in Sidi Bouzid the next day and joined his family and the rest of the Bouazizi clan. Everyone in the town was out on the streets. The police could barely contain them. I went back to Sidi Bouzid. And I felt like seeing those conflicts against the police and things like that. It was a good opportunity for, for me at least to express myself, to be a man, a real man. And we start burning wheels. I remember someone wanted just to open like a gas bottle, a big one. He wanted just a big explosion. The protest gave people an outlet for their frustration and their boredom. For the first time in their lives, many of these young people felt like they could say and do things in public that were completely off-limits and taboo just a few days before. The crowd empowered them. They could shout at the police. They could demand action. They said, like, We can survive with anything on bread, like water, but without Ben Ali, it's much better. We want our dignity. More and more people streamed into the streets. The local police, who knew almost everyone in the town and didn't want to see a riot break out, couldn't keep the masses from gathering. During the day, our families, they were giving them food, by the way. They were preparing couscous and things like that, and they were giving them to the police officers on the streets. And at night, it's hell. It's completely different. By the second evening, they had to call for reinforcements from elsewhere. But the police and forces from the Ministry of the Interior who showed up weren't as keen on keeping the peace. They didn't have the same ties with the local community. So when it came to force, it wasn't their cousin or their teacher they were raising a baton to. It was a stranger trying to threaten the regime that paid their bills. They shot tear gas into the crowd and started beating protesters, including Ziad. Me, my brother, and my father. We were all beaten. Even my dad, he didn't even participate in anything like an old man hanging on street. He was arrested. They took him and he was beaten. I remember he came back home yeah, with like blue eyes and things like that. We were having fun on him. Despite the brutality, there was an energy in the crowd. You can hear it in how Ziad laughs at his dad's black eyes. But Ziad and the rest of the protesters had no idea that what had started as outrage on behalf of his cousin was already becoming the first days of a revolution. Yeah. 
As things devolved on the street in Sidi Bouzid, and the news of the protest started to spread, one person was completely unaware. Mohamed Bouazizi. He'd been transferred to a hospital outside of Tunis, put on life support, and wrapped from head to toe in white bandages like a mummy. And he was about to receive a very special visitor. A tall man, with slicked-back dark hair, in wire-rimmed glasses and an expensive suit, with a camera crew in tow. Bouazizi may have never seen the face of the governor in his 26 years in Sidi Bouzid, but in his final moments of life, and many speculate he was, in fact, long dead at this moment, he was about to come face to face with Tunisia's dictator, President Zine al-Abidin Ben Ali. That was the episode Sidi Bouazid, the first episode of Revolution Number 1. It aired on January 14th, the 10th anniversary of the start of the Arab Spring. And that'll do it for this week's Foreign Policy Playlist. Rob Sachs and Sofia Sanchez produced today's show. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. If you want to clue me in to another great podcast I might not know about, please do. I'm all ears. You can email me at podcast at foreignpolicy.com. And for more information about FP Podcasts, please check out our website, foreignpolicy.com, or join our Facebook group. I'm Jonathan Tepperman, and I'll see you next week.